Let's pray. Father, now as we open your word together and we study once more, I pray that you'll bless our time together. Give me strength to, to do well here and and Father, give uh, others strength to listen. We thank you for how gracious and kind you are to us and how you've taken care of all of our needs. Help us to do well. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be reading two sections from Matthew 13 as we study the parable of the wheat and the tares. I like this one, and uh, I thought it would be a good time to review it here as we're wrestling some of us through quarantine and isolation. So Matthew chapter 13, let's talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares beginning in verse 24. Matthew 13, 24. Now here we are. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so that's the parable. Now we go to the explanation, which begins in verse 36 of Matthew 13. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, This is the first part of our puzzle. And in this particular parable, Jesus is the one sowing the good seed. You might remember the other parable in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, as it's commonly called. And in the parable of the sower, that could be anyone. It could be you, it could be me, it could be an apostle. In the parable of the sower, the sower is anyone who is spreading the word of God, which is the seed. But that's not the case in this parable. In this parable, the wheat and the tares, the sower is the Son of Man. The sower is Jesus. First piece of the puzzle. Verse 38, Jesus continues, The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. All right, let's think about this for a moment. When Jesus says that the field is the world, that shouldn't be surprising because that's basically what we find in the parable of the sower. But when Jesus says the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the wicked one, that is a drastic change from the parable of the sower. In this parable, the seed represents people and the good seed, that stuff that grows into wheat, is called the sons of the kingdom. And the bad seed, the stuff that grows into tares, weeds, the bad seeds are called the sons of the wicked one. Huh. 
Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them, the bad seeds, the tares, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Now, before we read verses 40 through 43, let's take all these puzzle pieces and let's, let's go through them. Part 1, Jesus goes into the world, he goes into the field, and he plants his people, sons of the kingdom, in the world. And of course, the expectation when somebody plants something is that it's going to grow. So Jesus' expectation is that his people will grow and that they will bear fruit unto the Lord, right? That's what Jesus wants of his people. Good works, good fruit, uh, worthy of repentance. What kind of people are these? Well, these are the people who do great and big things for God, like start churches, but these are also the people who serve in churches. These are missionaries, but they're also business leaders, people who work under the Lord. They're teachers, they are employees of companies, slaves, orphans, widows, people who are rich, people who are poor. These people are really diverse. They don't come all from the same race. They don't come all from the same background. They don't come all from the same upbringing. Christianity is not a particular racial identity or economic identity. Jesus' sons of the kingdom are diverse people. In fact, they are so diverse that the only way they can be collectively identified is by the phrase, sons of the kingdom. Jesus is the great unifier of these otherwise diverse people. That's the thing they have in common. They are all belonging to God's kingdom. They are united in that purpose. And then the expectation is they will grow to bear fruit unto the Lord. Jesus has planted these people all across the world. And that's wonderful. I mean, that is really wonderful. If you are a Christian, you have been planted in the world where you are, where you live. You have been sown into the ground that has fallen, that is this fallen world that we live in. And you've been put there with purpose. Jesus has put you where you are with purpose, with the expectation, not as some preachers preach, that you're going to uh, be tremendously wealthy or, or tremendously successful by the world's standards. No, the sower Jesus has planted you with the purpose that where you are, you will bear fruit. The Lord has a purpose in your life. You aren't where you are by some random series of events. You don't have the life that you have because of chance or luck. God knows what He's doing. There's more purpose designed in it than that. If you belong to Him, then your life matters. Jesus has put you where you are with the expectation that you will grow. And as you grow, you come to spiritual life and you bear spiritual fruit and you make a difference for God's kingdom. You know, it's something of sustenance. That's part one. Now part two. We find in this parable that the devil has an evil plan to try to thwart, to try to mess up, what the sons of the kingdom are doing in the world. And just as Jesus has sown his people throughout the world, so the devil has planted his own people in the world, except that's not all we see. When Satan plants his people in the world, in this parable, he plants them among Jesus' people. He plants them so that they will look like Jesus' people. And it's not until they start to bear fruit, it's not until they've begun growing towards maturity among Jesus' people for a very long time, that it becomes obvious that these are not actually Jesus' people. Of course, by that time, it's too late. They, they've grown up among them. It's too late to go ripping them out like weeds. Notice verse 26, the servants of Jesus see what the enemy Satan has done. 
Verse 26, this is what they say. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. Now in verse 28, the servants ask, Do you want us to go and gather up the tares? Do you want us to go rip the plants out of the ground so that the good plants that you sowed can thrive? No, Jesus answers in verse 29. Don't rip them out. If you do that, if you go around ripping around the bad stuff, ripping out the bad stuff, you might uproot, you might damage, you might destroy some of the good stuff that's growing. In verse 30, here's the Lord's plan. Wait until the harvest is done. Wait until we uproot all of the plants, and then we'll separate the good from the bad. So the first part of the parable is encouraging. Jesus has planted his people in the world. That is encouraging. Second part of the parable is sinister. Satan has placed false Christians in and among the real Christians to grow indistinguishably among the real Christians, only to be recognized when it's time to bear fruit and they don't bear any. Third part of the parable is God's plan to deal with this sinister scheme. At the end of the age, when the Lord returns, the harvest in this parable, the Lord will send His angels out to separate true Christians from false Christians, the wheat and the tares. Here it is, verse 40 through 43. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. That's Jesus. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So when Jesus comes back to this earth, there will be judgment. And those who are false, who are phony, who don't bear fruit, who don't belong to the Lord, they will be separated from the sons of the kingdom and burned in the fire, according to verse 40. Hell, judgment, separation from God. Kicked out of His kingdom into a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what verse 42 says. Agony, pain, and judgment. So I want you to pay careful attention to how verse 41 describes this. Verse 41 says... The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. Where are the offenders at? Where are the false Christians located? They are in God's kingdom because the angels are going to go out and gather out of God's kingdom the things that offend. The things that offend are in God's kingdom on this earth. They are blending in. They are among God's people. They will stay there doing their work until the Lord returns. Folks, this is not a parable about the judgment of people who are Muslims. This isn't a parable about the judgment of God on people who are atheists. This is a parable about the judgment of people who call themselves Christians. They have made a home for themselves in and among God's people but they're false. They're false because 
they don't bear fruit. Verse 41 says they offend. You know what that means? They claim to be servants of Jesus, but they are an offense to Jesus because they do not do what he has commanded them to do. Their life does not produce, bear fruit, their life does not produce what Jesus has commanded them to produce. And that's offensive. To bear the name of Christian, to make a joke out of what it means to live for Christ, that's offensive. Verse 41 also says they practice lawlessness. They're wicked. They make a practice out of their sin. They don't repent of it. They claim it. They own it. It's a part of their lifestyle. And then verse 41 promises that these will be cast into the furnace where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So make no mistake about it. The, the plan of Jesus for dealing with these false Christians who live in and among real Christian people, misrepresenting the Lord and making a joke out of what it means to have faith in God is the judgment of eternal hell. It's no surprise that when these are eliminated and the Lord has returned, verse 43 says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun. There are no more weeds getting in the way. No more phonies sown by the enemies. All of God's people have been gathered together in His kingdom. Now, if we think about the disciples sitting here listening to Jesus, this must have been quite a shock to them. Because clearly, Jesus has a much longer view of His kingdom than they were hoping for. They were hoping that Jesus was going to march right into Jerusalem any day now, set up God's kingdom, and take over the world. But here Jesus is painting a much broader picture of how this kingdom of God on the earth is going to unfold. During phase one, Jesus will plant his people all over the world. You and I have a part in that. Satan will then plant his fake Christians all over the world. I hope we don't have anything to do with that. Those people will get in the way of what the Lord's trying to do. And during this first phase of God's kingdom, the fake Christians and the real Christians will often be difficult to differentiate from. They'll often be confused for each other. They'll put on the same kind of clothes. They'll go to the same kind of churches. They'll, they'll dress up the same kind of ways. They'll observe the same kind of holidays. They'll say the same kind of religious things. If you want to know what I'm talking about, just have some conversations with real Bible-believing Christians who have relocated and have recently taken up the task of looking for a church. Not every place that calls itself a church is the real deal. And it's not always easy to discern the churches from the outside and who they're really serving, uh, whether or not they're bearing fruit or not. In many churches, you know, you find a kind of mixed seed in and among the church. There are some real fruit-bearing, kingdom-seeking people, and you find uh, people who are pastors and who don't teach God's Word, who aren't concerned at all with equipping the saints. Uh, who aren't concerned at all with teaching the Word of God. And you scratch your head and you say, man, it's really hard to tell exactly what's going on here. There's some real kingdom-seeking people, and then there's some people who don't seem to care about the kingdom of God at all. And it's that kind of confusion that is going to mark certain places in this first phase of God's kingdom that we're experiencing here on the earth. All around the world, you've got real Christians and fake Christians you got Christians who take sin seriously, people who submit to the Bible, people who want to do what God has said, who want to sacrifice themselves for the Lord, people who want to give their time and their money and their energy to build God's kingdom in the name of the Lord. And five miles down the street, you find people in the same place who call themselves the same thing, Christians, who carry the same kind of Bibles, wear the same kind of crosses, meet on the same day of the week, 
who live and act and talk like actually doing what the Bible commands is a funny old idea. They look the same until you engage them and you see there's no fruit production in their lives. And their messages aren't about serving Jesus, they're about serving yourself. And man, phase one of God's kingdom that we're living in, it is going to be difficult and challenging. You know what this parable shows us? It shows us that God is delaying His judgment here. He is delaying judgment. God is allowing places like this and peoples like this, even churches like this. He is allowing their offense to continue. He is allowing them to grow. And the parable tells us why in order that no real Christians get caught up in their judgment. Now listen to me. If you have spent your whole life in this church, or in another Bible-believing church, then this idea might seem strange to you, that real Christians could somehow get disturbed by God's judgment of false Christians. But if we went around uh, and asked all the members of our church, all the adults, to describe the churches that they grew up in and and, and where they first came to the faith, where they first heard about the name of Jesus, you would find many of the places where Christians first heard the good things about Jesus were not actually God-honoring places, by and large. And yet, because there was a Sunday school class one day in this place that, for the most part, did not honor God, and some literature was covered in that Sunday school class, and John 3.16 was declared because of that, a little boy's heart was convicted of sin and warned of hell. And that, that was the difference. That was, that was the start of, of real spiritual growth. Or because of some Sunday sermon preached by a pastor who rarely ever opened his Bible at all. He just kind of happened to stumble upon the right message someday. And he actually preached on sin and hell. And everybody was shocked. Maybe some people were mad. But because of that, one person was convicted of sin and got saved. If we went around the church and we asked we would find that there are many people here whom God has redeemed out of fake, meaningless, offensive Christianity. And now they're bearing fruit to the Lord. And do you know something? If the Lord had ripped up those places wherever they were because they were offensive to Him, those people may never have heard the gospel and flourished to begin with. The Lord is delaying judgment because God can save people even out of unrighteous and awful situations. Folks, this is always true. The only reason that God has not sent His Son Jesus back to this earth today to judge the world, the only reason that God delays judgment at all is so that people may have more time to repent, to be saved, to serve Jesus. This is 2 Peter 3, 9, where Peter asks the question, When will the day of the Lord come? When will Jesus return to the earth in judgment? And then he, he, he writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, His promise of judgment. His promise of salvation, as some would count slowness. But, Peter says, the Lord is patient, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient with you. Think about that for a moment. God is patient with you. I don't know what your life was like before you gave your life to Jesus and repented. I don't know. Strangely, all that much about how your life is now, Christian, and just what I can see and observe. It should be an encouragement that God is patient with you. I know it's an encouragement to me that He was patient with the world while preparing a plan of redemption 
had involved the giving of his only son to go and die on a cross to pay for sin. God is patient with you. You know, he is patient in a plan that included the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ and ascension into heaven in a way that for 2,000 years unbelievers have mocked and ridiculed. Nevertheless, he is patient and he, he doesn't extend judgment either personal or collective on, on the entire world with the return of that son. The vindication of his plan, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he doesn't execute that judgment yet because he is patient. He wants people to be saved before that day comes. Then Peter writes, The Lord is patient, but the day of the Lord will come. That's what Peter says. The day of judgment will come. Phase one of the kingdom, God delays judgment. He allows false Christians to grow in and among His people because He's patient. He's not desiring that any should perish. But phase two of God's kingdom is when Jesus returns. The day of the Lord, judgment. God will not suffer the offenders forever. When Jesus returns, judgment will come. The righteous will shine like the sun. The second phase of God's kingdom, the wicked will have no part in it. The wicked will be gathered out of the kingdom and thrown into suffering into eternal hell. And don't be thrown into hell with the wicked. Don't be thrown into hell with the wicked. Don't reject the offering of salvation that God has made extended to you in the giving of Jesus Christ. Don't be thrown out with the wicked. What does it take to be saved? Admit that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior. Believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, that He gave His life on the cross for your sin, that He rose again on the third day. Commit your life to obeying and serving Him, to honoring and loving Him, to being His disciple. Very quickly, let's just make three points and then I'll close. Number one, Jesus knows what's going on in your life. He's not blind to it. He knows the good, the bad, the fake, the real. What you're doing with your life either honors Him or it offends Him, and He knows what's going on. Don't think that He doesn't see what's going on, just like in the parable here when He looks out across the field and, and it's reported to Him that there are fruit-producing seeds that He had planted and then there are tares that the enemy has sown. Jesus knows what's going on. Don't mistake patience for ignorance with the Lord. Just because judgment is delayed does not, does not mean that He is ignorant that judgment is deserved. Second thing I'll say, God's people should live with purpose. Our lives aren't meaningless. You've been planted and sowed where you are, and you're supposed to bear fruit to the Lord. And yes, there are going to be people that get in the way of that. And there are going to be enemies, and there are going to be difficulties, and there are going to be distractions, and there's going to be persecutions, and there's going to seem like there's a billion other things worth your time and energy. But God has given purpose to your life, a purpose that's not found in the ambitions of your personal desires for wealth or for family or for personal satisfaction or retirement or enjoyment or whatever else it may be. God has sown you where you are, with the purpose of producing fruit for His kingdom, and therein and therein alone lies a lasting fulfillment that will matter in eternity. The third thing, and the final thing that I'll observe here, let's be very careful, very, very careful and discerning with people, places, and things that are called Christian. 
too often, you know, parents are willing to send their kids off on some Christian event to some Christian activity with some Christian group, and they don't seem to be very discerning at all about the people that the kid is going with, the friends that the kid has, the message that's going to be taught there, the book that the kid is reading, the message that the kid is listening to, and even worse, too many adults just have very little discernment for the message that they themselves are listening to. You know, you can go down the street to a Christian bookstore. You can jump on the Internet to a Christian website. You can Google all sorts of Christian questions. And you can try to track down all sorts of answers to all sorts of problems. And you can get tons of feedback from Christian sources. Do you know who God has given you to help you with tough things and learning and difficult questions? He's given you pastors. Pastors. Now, that may seem self-serving to say, but you know what the advantage is of asking me a question about the Bible? I can sit down with you and we can talk about it face-to-face -face in God's Word. And you know what the other advantage is? When we get up and we go on about our lives, you get to look at my life and you get to see if the kind of life that I live represents the kind of servant of God that I should be, that I claim to be. You get to see if there's sin. You get to see how I speak to my wife. You get to see how I act with my children. You get to see how I behave in the community. And you get to see that day in and day out as you observe the way that I live. You know, the Bible says that you shall know them by their fruit. We should be very discerning about things that are called Christians, things that are called Christian are you examining the fruit of what it is that you so eagerly give your education and instruction and discipleship over to? You know, pastors may not be the, 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 the smartest people in the world, and, and they may stumble over themselves a little bit. They may struggle with answers from time to time, but the advantage of a local pastor is this is a guy that you can see and you can know. This is a guy that, that is not some name on a page or some, some, some heading on the top of a website. This is a real person. And you can listen and open God's Word with that person, and then you can evaluate whether or not their Christianity is authentic in the fruit that they produce. So, third thing I'll say here is, let's be very careful and discerning with what we call Christian, because the enemy has sown tares among what God has sown. The enemy has sown seed that will not produce. And we need to be on the watch for that, okay? Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you once again for the opportunity to love and to serve you by opening your word and reading these instructions and seeking to apply it to our lives. I pray that this has been helpful to people. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to, to look upon all of the Christian, quote-unquote, resources around us that that we look at them with a discerning eye, and that we put a lot more value than perhaps we do on the Christian resources that the Spirit of God has given us locally, namely the pastors and teachers whose lives we can observe, whose friendship we can know. Father, help us to endure this phase one of your kingdom and to see it through to phase two, where we'll all shine like the sun, all in your presence, all together, unhindered by sin. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bring us back together again soon. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.